Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Faith Works Live. Here's your host, Rebecca Haney. Hello and welcome to Faith Works Live. Uh, have I mentioned? I'm so glad you're here. And we're, we've got a really exciting episode, I dare say. And that's a prediction because it hasn't happened yet. But I am uh, confident because I'm not the one that's going to be the subject matter expert on this one. You're going to hear a fascinating um, a tale of events from Tyler Hawkins' life. He's my friend. He's the preacher at Ogden Church of Christ. He's also a military chaplain with the Army National Guard. And uh, he is studying for his master's in um is masters in master why do i always get this wrong masters of yeah, divinity master of divinity okay That's see yeah. i knew that and then i doubted myself that's a pro- crisis uh, crisis of faith <laughs> for just a moment there but thank thank you for being there for me tyler uh, he's my friend and he's as a part of his studies he just recently as in like just came back off the plane like last week um got to visit Israel for an extended uh, couple couple of weeks almost, and uh, had some fascinating uh, historical and uh, archaeological discoveries while he was there, and got to see the land of the Bible firsthand. Very, very cool. I'm excited to talk about it and to learn vicariously through him because it's much cheaper for me that way, and for you too. You get to learn for free. Uh, Tyler, it's great to have you back on the show. How are you? Yeah, excellent. Thank you so much. Always good to be back. I know we've had to miss the, the past couple of weeks, and, and this week we're not doing our, our typical one-word study, but that's okay because I think that uh, our discussions here uh, tonight will hopefully be eye-opening for a lot of people, and I get really excited about being able to share uh, everything I got to see in Israel and, and everything I got to do, literally literally unearthing you know God's promised land to the Israelites from 3,000 years ago. So it was just uh, an unbelievable, life-changing experience, and, and love to be able to share it. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's one of the coolest parts of your trip. I mean, a lot of people may have it. I'm sure it's on most believers bucket lists, right? If you're a Christian, you would love to see um, some of the many beautiful places, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, places that uh, we feel as though we know, but it's almost almost like a fairy tale for many people that have never been there. It, it, you feel that distance, right? I've, I've heard of these people and these places, and I believe, but I've never experienced experienced it for myself. It's so far away from my 21st century American life, most of which is spent behind us, too much of which is spent behind a screen at this point. So it's all too easy to kind of slip into Star Wars, right? Like a, lo- a land far in a galaxy far, far away, yeah. <laughs> a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Um, but this really happened. 
Jesus yeah. really came to a real place and really walked in real shoes and real sand. And you got to see some of those places firsthand, which is incredibly cool. Yeah, yeah. And, and to your point, an analogy I gave, I didn't go the Star Wars route, but something that I've been sharing with with a lot of people and, and a lot of soldiers this week while I'm still on orders, I'm, I'm sitting at my military office on base. So um, is I've been making the comparison to something like reading Harry Potter, because that's something so many people are familiar with. Uh, and most people of at least my generation uh, have probably read the Harry Potter books. And when you read through the Harry Potter books, uh, a location, something like Hogwarts can feel so real. And, and it's, it's, you become personally invested in this fictional place of Hogwarts because of such the, the lively descriptions that draw you into this fantasy land. And you can feel like you have this deep resonating connection with Hogwarts. But then if you go and you open up a history book and you're reading about the Mississippi River, it doesn't seem real. Like you have no concept of what the Mississippi River is actually like unless and until you've seen the Mississippi River in its majesty for yourself. Mm -hmm. And so in those contexts, like Hogwarts can feel like more of a real place, even though it's fictional, than a very real place such as the Mississippi River. And, and I think that in that contemporary context, most people, uh, well, maybe not most, but here in Iowa, we're close enough to the Mississippi River. A lot of people and a lot of Iowans can go to the Mississippi River and see it. Uh, but not a lot of people are able to go to Israel uh, and to see the sites where, where Jesus walked, to see the sites where Moses was, where Joshua was, where the Israelites were. And, and we can turn to scripture, open it up and read an account uh, while we're standing and at the walls of Jericho and understanding the history. It's like, this isn't something made up. Like, this isn't just some Hogwarts that somebody wrote down. Like, this is a real location. Here it is. Here's the stones that I can touch with my own hands. And it just brings the Bible to life uh, in a way that really has no parallel. Right. Well, and you mentioned as well, the really cool and unique thing about this is you didn't just get to see, well, that's amazing enough. You didn't get to just see those locations. You were also involved in archaeological excavation. Say that six times fast <laughs> this time of day. I need more coffee or not enough. Um, yeah. the, the archaeological excavation of some of these historic sites of interest, in particular at Shiloh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so that was uh, just such a great blessing for Freed Hardman University, which is where I'm uh, doing my graduate studies, uh, that they were able to secure a partnership with an organization called the Associates of Biblical Research. And it is an archaeological organization that was founded back in the, oh, I think late 70s, early 80s, uh, dedicated to the sole purpose of archaeological research and discovery uh, by using scripture as their guide for conducting groundbreaking um, excavations throughout the land uh, and saying, okay, we're going to use the Bible as our map and we're going to go to these sites. We're going to use the terrain features that are given. We're going to use the names and, and the history of these places in order to direct our pickaxes and our shovels on where to go. And as they've been doing that for the past close to 50 years now, every single time they found that what's there under the dirt perfectly matches in line with the descriptions that are in the Bible. And how, how incredible is that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who would have thought that the Holy Spirit knew what he was talking about when right. he inspired the writers to record this history for us? And it's just, it's just so unbelievable to think that, uh, you know, we, we attribute, you know, Moses, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, you know, Joshua coming in up after that. I mean, these, these characters, these people, they date to 3,500 years ago. Uh, and, and yet their historical accounts are something that we can still tangibly view uh, with doing proper archaeological research. And so that was what Freed Hardman 
my university was wanting to do was to get students this experience to make us better Christian leaders, to be able to see these places firsthand and to actively help out with, at the location where we were, which is Shiloh. Uh, and for listeners who might not know a lot about Shiloh, Shiloh is the location where Joshua had a tabernacle built for the Ark of the Covenant. And so Shiloh was really the hub of Israelite religious uh, life uh, all the way up until Solomon built the temple, up until the, the, the tribes and the, and the kingdoms were reunited, uh, first by David, finalized by Solomon. Solomon builds the temple around 960-ish BC. Well, back up about 500 years, and you have Joshua, 1400 BC, uh, and the Israelites are just new into the promised land, into Canaan's land. Uh, and Shiloh is the site where, through the casting of lots, God providentially ordained which, which areas of land would be allotted to each of the 12 tribes. That happened in Shiloh. Uh, one of a lot of Christians' favorite passages, especially a, a lot of women uh, that are going through motherhood or, or are trying to prepare for motherhood, is Hannah. What a wonderful uh, Christian example of faith. Uh, in Hannah. Well, Hannah happened at Shiloh. Like her prayer is at the tabernacle that we were excavating at Shiloh. And so it's just, it's so powerful to be breaking ground in this land, knowing that, hey, 3,500 years ago, uh, Hannah is going to Eli the priest and, and, and is praying to God for a son. And this is where Samuel was born. This is where the prophet Samuel was raised and trained as a prophet for God, who would, you know, we know Samuel would go on to become the advisor to to King da- to King Saul, and then on to King David, and that's at Shiloh. And so it is incredibly important for for Old Testament history, and and they found it. And so it was just incredible to be a part of that team. And, and depending on how the rest of our discussion goes, we can talk about some specific findings, or we can branch off to other locations because because we visited thirty locations throughout the country while I was there. But Shiloh was our where we spent the most time because we were actively digging there. The other sites mm-hmm. we, we just got to, to see and learn about informationally, but, but the, those, those dig sites were closed. So we were just learning about them. Mm-hmm. So you spent most of the time in, uh, of, of the day, your day's work, most of it yeah. was spent in Shiloh. Yeah. So we were there 11 total days. I mean, the trip was two weeks because of travel times and whatnot, but, but we were in country for 11 full days. Five of those days were spent at the dig site in Shiloh. And the other six were spent on a bus going from one site to the next. And, and we did not have a single short day the entire time. We were, we were keeping 16 to 18 hour long days uh, the entire time, just trying to pack. So we're, we're trying to pack, you know, 4,000 years worth of biblical history into those six days that we had to travel around. And so we, we stayed busy. It sounds like it. It sounds like this was not for the faint of heart. And you you had long days. And these were physical days uh, in particular because of the digging. Let's describe what the activity is actually like at a, an archaeological dig site. Yeah. So uh, the director for the dig site uh, that we were at, uh, it's a uh, professor by the name of Dr. Scott Stripling. Uh, and he is one of the board members for the ABR, the Associates of Biblical Research, and he is the archaeologist uh, who actually spearheaded the the diggings at Mount Abal, where they found the Mount Abal curse tablet. They found it back in 2019. Uh, These findings are slow. The research is slow. And so it wasn't until this year that the official peer-reviewed journal came out about that curse tablet finding. But that the the Mount Abal curse tablet, that, that is 
uh, being argued as, as the single most significant archaeological find in the past hundred years. Uh, it has totally turned upside down uh, our understanding of history. Well, not biblical understanding of history, but for the secular historians out there that mm-hmm. would have a very, that previously had an extremely different understanding of world events. Uh, now with this Mount of All Curse tablet, uh, they are now having to reconcile that here is this discovery that is perfectly in line with the biblical description for a piece of history that they have argued for the last 50 years of archaeological research could not possibly exist. And it does. Uh, and so anyway, that was a little bit of a tangent. Dr. Scott Stripling uh, is leading the team at Shiloh as a director, and he describes archaeology today uh, as the golden age of archaeology. Uh, and the reason for that is just modern technology. We are mm-hmm. able to uh, dig through the dirt, sift through the findings in a much more refined, systematic process than, than times in the past. Uh, and so before uh, you know, let's go back, you know, 40, 50, a hundred years, uh, in archeology span and your primary purpose in digging, uh, is your, your breaking ground and you're just trying to find large structures. And if you find small artifacts, then that's great, but really they're, they're not putting through enough time intensive process to sift through every grain of dirt, uh, to find things. It's just too time sensitive. And so today what they have going on, uh, to describe our dig site uh, Shiloh was broken up into, oh, I'm going to ballpark it and say around 30 to 40 squares. Uh, and each square would be like a part of a wall or an entire building or room. And we would have a team of, uh, well, diggers will say, uh, so like my Fried Hardman team, we were assigned one location, uh, at a wall, but there were other teams from other universities, independent volunteers there. And each dig square would be responsible for just digging through the dirt and then running it through uh, two layers of sifting. Uh, the first layer of sifting is going to be called dry sifting. And that uh, it's essentially like uh, panning for gold, right? You've got, you've got this, uh, this uh, um, uh, just lost the word, like a mesh wire, uh, like a steel like a mesh. Screen. Like a screen. Thank you. Yeah, mm-hmm. like, like a screen in which you would dump you know, large two gallon, roughly two gallon buckets of rock and dirt onto these metal screens. And and you just are are rocking the sifter back and forth, getting rid of all the loose dirt. If you find large rocks, you just trash that. Uh, But all the small stuff you keep in the sifter. And if you find something juicy, like a really good pottery shard, or we had one guy on on our team, Freed Hardman in our dig site that found uh, an entire flint knife unbroken. Uh, And so that was a really cool finding to, to find a flint knife. Um, and so you, you, any larger things like that, we find, we set aside, uh, for the professional archeologists to review, uh, and for them to study. Uh, but for everything else, the second layer of sifting, and this is where the real game changing happens is, is called wet sifting. And so we would take all, all the remaining dirt and small rock and rubble that's left in our dry sifting pan. And we take it over to a water sifting station. And it was really genius the way they have this set up. Uh, they had a, a shack set up. Uh, so imagine just a four wall structure and, and lining one corner of the of the walls would be a, a water hose system uh, with drop down hoses on each that almost looks like the sprayers that you would see in like an industrial kitchen uh, to, to hose down dishes. If anybody's ever worked in the food industry, sure. uh, these hoses that are hanging down and you would set your trays underneath these hoses and, and you would spray the remaining rock and rubble perfectly clean. And 
And it sounds like something that archaeologists have always done because that's uh, because when you clean things, you can more clearly see what they are. And now all of a sudden, that dirty little rock is actually a bone or it's a curse tablet because that's exactly how the Mount Abal curse tablet was found. You Everyone mentioned- thought it was a rock. You mentioned that, and I was blown away by mm-hmm. the fact that this was essentially this one of perhaps the most um, just remarkable finding, the the yeah. most um, revolutionary finding of archaeology of maybe of all time, but certainly the last century was basically yeah. thrown out with the trash. Yeah, totally thrown out, and it's because the 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 Mount Abal, the the original first dig site at Mount Abal, uh, they. They did not do wet sifting, and they barely did any dry sifting because, once again, they're looking for structures. And so the team that led that was by an archaeologist by the name of Adams or Tall. Uh, my understanding is he passed away a number of years ago. I, I don't remember exactly when. But Adams or Tall was a secular Jew, not, not a believer, uh, obviously not in Jesus, but not even a believer spiritually in the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law. Uh, he's uh, um, just a Jew by birth. Uh, but he's a historian, and he was a very reputable historian and archaeologist. Uh, and so it was some of his students that, if I remember correctly, and I, I might be wrong on this, but if I remember correctly, it, it might have actually been some of his students that proposed digging at this location to see if by chance they could find an altar uh, as the Bible described it, because his students were religious Jews. And so sure enough, they they got the funding and everything, and they began digging there in the 80s. And they were looking for an altar-like structure. They were not looking to find curse tablets. They were not looking to find small amulets. Uh, and so as they're uncovering, uh, I mean, just small boulders, essentially, uh, Israel, the terrain in Israel is extremely rocky. Uh, and so when you're digging up soil, uh, it's not like the rich Iowa soil that we have here. Uh, it is extremely rocky ground. And so you're getting all this trash, rock, and rubble, and you're just throwing it out so that you can try to find identifiable uh, structures. Uh, and so they threw out the curse tablet. And who knows what else they've thrown out? We, they haven't finished sifting through all that. But it was actually Dr. Scott Stripling's team. They're the ones that said, hey, we've got this uh, uh, site that has been identified as an altar during the time of Joshua at Mount Ball, but no one's ever sifted through the junk pile yet. So let's take a team and do the sifting. And so to bring it back to Shiloh, it, the same wet sifting technology that we were using is what was used at Mount Ball. And when they got the curse tablet in the pan, every, it just looked like a rock. This is just a rock like everything else. It's covered in dirt. It's got jagged edges. It's obviously rock. Well, until you wash it clean. And now all of a sudden, hey, this isn't just a rock. This, this is a, a, an intentionally carved out lead tablet about the size of two postage stamps. It's not huge, which is how it was easy to miss, about the size of two postage stamps. Uh, and when they got it cleaned, it was, it was undeniably a lead tablet. They didn't know what was written on it yet. That had to go to a lab to be studied. Uh, and then after being taken to a lab and being studied, they found that it is actually uh, the curse that is given in Joshua 9. So you've got uh, a curse written in an ancient form of Hebrew that perfectly lines up with the curse given in Scripture, and it's found at the location as described in Scripture. I, I don't know anybody that's arguing it's literally the tablet that Joshua penned. It was most likely done by, uh, by a fellow Israelite from the time period mm-hmm. as a way to reinforce the curses for all people. So I don't know if anybody that's arguing it's literally was done by Joshua's hand, but it would have certainly been done by an Israelite at the time of Joshua. And that is why it's such a profound finding. And it wouldn't have been found if not for wet sifting. 
And so wet sifting is very new. That's just within the past 10 years has it become popular. And, and Dr. Scott Stripling is one of the, the reasons why archaeologists now uh, are making this a priority for dig sites all across the Middle East and in Israel. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of our, our basic process at the dig site. We, we dig down the ground, uh, we, we dry sift, and then we take it over to the wet sifting station. And so our, dry, our, our wet sifters were finding all kinds of goodies uh, at our site, um, everything from, from amulets, jewelry, beads, coins, all these things that just look like rock until they get cleaned off uh, through the wet sifting system. That's going to be my new cleaning philosophy. Everything looks, you could tell what something is when it's clean. That makes That's total right. sense. Well, and, and what you were just saying on a serious note, what you yeah. were just saying struck me um, in particular about the story about the Mount Ebal curse tablets is that uh, it all depends on what you're looking for. Yeah. And the amazing evidence that you could miss, right? It could be right in front of your nose. And there's so many people that, I mean, not to take that metaphor too far, but just sure. go with me. Uh, there yeah, are so many yeah. people that uh, say, well, I, I want to see a sign. I want God to show himself to me. And I think, what? Just just look around. Open yeah. your eyes. Look, look, look at this Bible, for example. Here's something where God has very clearly delineated in your own language, like exactly what it is that he's trying to tell you. And yeah. it all depends. Uh, just imagine all the things that we miss because we're not looking for them. And yet, if we seek, we will find. God promises that if we see, he is near to those who seek him. And if we search for him with our whole hearts, he will be found. And that seems like a, an apt description of what's happening in these, in these dig sites as well as everywhere else. And that's so cool that you get to be a part of that um, evidence-finding mission, Tyler. Yeah. Um, we're talking with Tyler Hawkins. Uh, he's uh, my friend, and he is the minister at the Ogden Church of Christ. He's also uh, just recently returned from an a historical trip to Israel where he got to be a part of digging for actual biblical history at Shiloh. And he he sort of glossed over something that I think is really exciting. They went to a lot of different locations. So we'll talk more about the entire trip and uh, some of the, the places where he was walking in really the footsteps of Jesus and how we know um, that these places are real, some of the evidence for that. Um, and, uh, the, one of the coolest things, cause he gave us a little bit of preview, uh, on Sunday and, uh, one of the coolest things that you talked about, um, was in your, your dig at Shiloh was in looking at the, uh, descriptions in the Bible and, and understanding exactly where the tabernacle was like, like they literally found this, um, it's an amazing discovery. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break because that's my kind of cliffhanger. This is where the story gets good. Um, so we're going to cue up the Indiana Jones theme song and uh, we're going to talk to more of, uh, talk about more of Tyler Hawkins, Israel journey and archeological dig and what we can learn from the evidence of, of the Holy land in God's word, that this is really real. There's evidence that exists and History and archaeology, what do you know, tends to prove God's God was right all along. Um, keep on listening and keep on learning. We're on FaithWorks Live. We'll be right back. Doing your homework? Yeah, Dad. I have to explain where the universe came from. Oh, I can help. The universe just appeared out of nowhere. Science has disproved spontaneous generation many times. Something can't come from nothing. Oh, well, then it's always been here. 
Want some ice cream? The second law of Fural Dynamics proves the universe is winding down. Your point being? The universe has an end. Therefore, it had a beginning. Matter has not always existed. Well, then the whole thing is just a figment of our imagination. Dad, we can predict the movement of heavenly bodies. Predictability indicates it's not an illusion. Those are the only three choices there are. What are you writing? Well, the only logical option left is that God created... That doesn't sound very scientific. It has to be one of the other three. Dad, you're not being logical. Can I have some ice cream now? Another message from Lifeline Productions, the comic strip of radio at lifelinepro.com. There's no better time than now to stand for life. And you can stand with Iowa's original pro-life organization, Pulse for Life. They're the longest standing nonprofit pro-life organization in Iowa, and they are dedicated to informing, educating, and inspiring a new generation to value the sanctity of all human life from fertilization until natural death. They serve at the state house. They educate in classrooms at events. They proudly serve on the coalition of pro-life leaders. They are on the front lines of the battle against this throwaway culture of death that we see all around us, and we are winning ground. Hearts and minds are changing, and the pro-life movement is continuing to grow. And you can be a part of the exciting things that are happening right here in our own backyard at pulseforlife.org and get your finger on the pro-life pulse. Sign up for their newsletter, find ways that you can make a difference, and how you can change hearts and minds with their pro-life apologetics course, pulseforlife.org. Now, you're applying for a loan of $3,000? Yes, we'd like to buy a used truck. I see. According to this, you have assets of over $10 million. Well, I'm sure it's a lot more, but I had to put something down. So why do you need a loan? To buy a truck. It's got air conditioning. Okay, maybe we'd better list these assets. Oh, okay, sure. Not that it would ever sell them. Let's see, there's my wife. She's been a real asset to me. It's got to be at least five million right there. My boy just got his braces off, and hey, he looks like a million bucks. I don't think you understand. I meant real assets. What does money have to offer that my family doesn't? Well, it would definitely provide a lot of security. My wife's been with me through the toughest of times. What more security do I need than that? Well, still, you could buy a lot with $10 million. You can't buy the feeling I had watching my boy hit his first home run in Little League. Wealth. There's more than one way to measure it. Another message from Lifeline Productions, the comic strip of radio at lifelinepro.com. You know how much we love Animus beef at the Haney House. It is delicious. It's wonderful quality. It's naturally raised with no steroids, antibiotics, and they just do what they do so well. High quality beef at the Animus Farm. But did you know you can actually see where your beef comes from? You can visit Animus Farm. The fine folks, Dave and Mary Lynn, are the most hospitable folks I may have ever met. They'll let you feed a bottle calf and then meet the cows at Animus Farm. And opening soon is a special treat, Mulberry Cottage, uh, for a stay at the Animus Farm. It's a family-oriented getaway, and they'll let you hike the trails out there. You can forage or bird watch or just enjoy the beautiful sunset from their porch. I'm very excited to check it out myself. And they'll even let you do a cookout with Animus Beef. Order your beef or your next vacation at animusbeef.com. That's O-H-N-E-M-U-S beef.com. <laughs> Good 
Sunday to tune in to Faith Works Live, especially if you are like me, love history, you love evidence for your faith, and you love apologetics with a little bit of dirt on it. Uh, Tyler Hawkins just came back from Israel and a tour there, and he got a chance to literally dig into biblical history with a team from Fried Hardman University, and they're studying and they were excavating in particular a portion of Shiloh. Uh, which is in Israel, and and uh, it's a, a very prominent place in the Old Testament in particular. So for those of us who want to travel to the left side of our Bibles and understand where uh, how God revealed himself throughout the uh, millennia, Shiloh is a huge location. As you mentioned, Tyler, it was the, the tabernacle, the house, the place for the Ark of the Covenant. And you kind of said, almost in a throwaway <laughs> comment, you're like, oh yeah, we found it. And and seriously, like Indiana Jones theme song is playing in my head. You found it. You you found the Ark of the Covenant. What what what's happening here? You you can't just skate by on that one. You got to give us details, man. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's, it's one of those things when you when you spend an entire week there, It uh, I won't say the amazingness of it ever wears off, but you forget how amazing it truly is if you've never seen it mm-hmm. <laughs> for yourself. And, and part of the reason is because when you go there, like, it's not like we're uncovering this refined, immaculate tabernacle today. Like, we're, we're digging through ruins, right? Uh, and so, to the untrained eye, it just looks like rock and rubble. I mean, honestly, uh, doing archaeology, one of, one of my big takeaways from an archaeologist's perspective, not saying I'm an archaeologist, but from the perspective of those who are trained archaeologists, is that doing archaeology rightly uh, is an art form, and it takes a trained eye uh, for pattern recognition. Uh, so much the same way as, as say, learning a new language, uh, or I believe the illustration I gave on Sunday uh, was deer hunting. Uh, if you have uh, uh, somebody who, who grew up deer hunting and somebody who's never been deer hunting, they could look out into a field, and the person who's never been deer hunting before will just say, oh, there's, there's no deer out today. But the deer hunter who who has a trained eye for pattern recognition will say, what are you talking about, man? There's 15 deer standing out there, wide out in the open. Uh, and, and so it takes a trained eye to know what to look for uh, and what it will look like when it's underground. Uh, and so the tabernacle, one of the difficult things with identifying the tabernacle uh, is that the, there's several descriptions of it, but you just get bits and pieces of what the tabernacle, where it would be located and what it would look like uh, throughout the book of Joshua, uh, the book of 1 Samuel, and, and even a little bit of mentions here in, a, in, in the book of Chronicles. Uh, and so you, you have to sift through numerous passages that talk about the tabernacle uh, at Shiloh to even get a feel for where it might have been and what it might have looked like. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'll just say that I'm not the expert. I'm not going to be able to recite three entire books right now off on the spot. I'm sorry for our listeners next for my time. ineptitude. I'm yeah, disappointed. Next time. <laughs> give, give me a week. I'll get it down. <laughs> Sounds uh, good. But 
for for these archaeologists that that knew uh, they were unearthing Shiloh because of some other excavations that had been done in the past that had rightly identified it as the correct hilltop, uh, and, and through some of the other artifacts that had been found, they, they knew that this was Shiloh, and it was just a question of where's the ark, or not the ark. We don't we don't have the ark, but the tabernacle where the ark would have been located for for over three centuries. The the ark of the covenant, you know, God's seat on earth the place where only the high priest could go to come into God's presence during the time of the Old Testament, uh, the place where it resided for the longest period of time uh, was here in Shiloh, uh, over 300 years. Uh, and so the tabernacle was found uh, right, right, on, right on the hilltop. So it's called a tell, a T-E-L, uh, which uh, loosely, roughly just means hill. Uh, but is usually a term to describe when a when a city would occupy a hilltop that would be known as Tel. So it would be called like Tel Shiloh is the way they pronounce it over there. Uh, and that was only discovered, I believe, two years ago. They knew wow. the tabernacle was going to be somewhere in the area. And uh, one of the things, I, I mean, I believe in the providence of God. I truly do. But it's always great when you have reminders of God's providence, because sometimes, you know, we can kind of forget in our everyday life. As you mentioned right before our break, we can sometimes overlook the blessings that God's already put in our life and the way that he's orchestrating the world around us to our benefit for serving him uh, Mm -hmm. rightly. Uh, And so the leading theory up until about two years ago was that the tabernacle should be found about halfway down the hill. And and so that was the leading theory. And, And Dr. Scott Stripling, who I mentioned, was the director of this dig site. Um, that was his. That was one of his leading theories. Uh, he was approaching Shiloh when he launched these excavations. As we are either going to find a tabernacle down here, or we probably won't find a definitive structure because it might have been a mobile. Ta- I mean, tabernacle just means tent. So there is some room there in the text that maybe it was a mobile site that could have been moved depending on the time of the year. You know, you got your windy and rainy season. You got your dry season, and it could have been moved. Uh, and so that's how they were digging, uh, was expecting it to find it in a t- completely different place. Uh, and so with all that in mind, they actually have a museum at the top of the hill. It's a, it's a very, very large museum. It's beautifully well done. And you can walk in there and, and they have a movie theater where you can watch this 15 minute long clip telling about the, the history in the Bible and the history of the dig site. Uh, and, and they've got this large rotunda where you can read all these art, look at all these artifacts that have been found. Uh, but what's incredible uh, is that this museum was built close to a decade ago, uh, wh- before they knew where the tabernacle would be, and and lo and behold, uh, roughly two years ago, they found the tabernacle not but about twenty yards from where this museum was, and and I think there's a little bit of God's providence there that when they were building the museum, they didn't destroy the <laughs> ruins of the tabernacle. Right. It, it, it it's remarkably close. Uh, and so the, the, the way that they now know that this is the tabernacle uh, has to do with the dimensions of the structure. So you not only have the external dimensions, but you have the internal dimensions as well, because they were able to identify the inner walls that would have been considered the, the holy of holies, mm-hmm. which would be the room where only the high priest could enter and would be the room where the Ark of the Covenant would have rested. And so, so that's based on the dimensions and the structure of having that inner walled system that is unique to all the other buildings that have been excavated around the area. Uh, we've also found, well, not, I say we collectively, not like my team, this has been going on for a couple years, uh, but but there at, at Tel Shiloh, uh, they have found other artifacts 
inside and immediately around this structure uh, that they very firmly believe now is a tabernacle that are directly connected and exclusively connected to the priests. And so they have found the dump pile just adjacent to and outside of the tabernacle where there's a dump of animal bones. And so they have a zooarchaeologist on site, one of the world's leading uh, zooarchaeologists who specializes in identifying ancient bones, uh, who has sifted through these bones uh, and analyzed them and had found that based on based on the way the bones are broken or the cuts that have been made or the parts that have been there based on char marks for that indicate burning, uh, has said these bones here are indicative of having been offered up as sacrifices. Mm. So they find a burial ground of sorts immediately outside the tabernacle, uh, which makes sense because the priests would take the sacrifices off the altar when they're done and cast them out. Uh, and so that was a big find when they found the, the bone dump pile. Uh, but they have also found ornamentations that were exclusively connected with the priests. Uh, one that we found uh, while I was there, the week that I was there, was a special type of seashell. Now, now tell Shalom, it's not, it's not along the Mediterranean. It's inland. It's pretty far inland. There, there's no ocean there. And for them to find a very specific type of seashell called the Murex shell, this was the seashell where the color blue was found uh, in ancient times. So blue, even today, blue is not an easy dye to produce, and it especially was a difficult dye to produce in the ancient times. Well, one of the very few ways to get the color blue is through these muric seashells that they would have had to have had imported in from the Mediterranean, and they would use these seashells to make the color blue, and only the priests could wear blue. And so these seashells were used to dye the priest's robes. That's fascinating. Yeah. And, and just one more that was directly connected with the priest is they have found pomeg uh, ceramic pomegranates. And pomegranates were a symbol uh, that are mentioned in scripture that the priests were allowed to adorn themselves with as a symbol of prosperity uh, and fertility for the nation of Israel. And so what the priests would do would, would be they would adorn their robes, their outer garments, their priestly robes with these ceramic pomegranates. Uh, as they were coming into and going out of the temple, uh, as a reminder of the of the the abundance of God's blessings for the people of Israel, and 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 these were things that were reserved exclusively for for the priests. And so to find some uh, an object associated with the color blue that only the priests could wear, to find the pomegranates, which were something that the priests would have, to find the bone dump pile of sacrificial animals, all of these things. Uh, just give further uh, validation to this rightly being the tabernacle, the place where Samuel would have been trained as a prophet, where Eli was serving as a priest. And so uh, it was just profound to, for them to have found so many great artifacts that strengthen uh, and support the argument that this is the rightful place of the tabernacle. Mm -hmm. And again, evidence that all of these are, are real events, real people, and a real God that interacted with real people. I mean, even if you're coming from a just a purely secular historical perspective, that's pretty convincing evidence that something's going on here, that that at least that the record of the Israelite nation and their inception and the way that God led them, even if you don't believe in that God, that that can be taken seriously as history and that the Bible in itself should be respected, even for its historical um, perspective alone. Yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. And, and so I, I mentioned the name Adam Zertal earlier as being the lead archaeologist for the initial excavation at Mount Abal back in the 80s. 
And that, that's the boat that he found himself in. He, he is approaching Mount Abal as a secular historian who, who believes at the time that he began the excavation of Mount Abal, he believed that the, the Old Testament tales of Moses and Joshua were nothing more than mythological legends uh, that were developed by the Israelite people to give them heroic figures in the same way that the Greeks would develop stories such as Zeus and Hercules as these godlike figures, especially Hercules being being this uh, heroic man figure that's connected with the divine as being a hero of the people. And so that's how Adam Zerdahl is approaching this. Well, and then he finds an altar that perfectly is in line with the descriptions that are provided in, in the Old Testament. And so, uh, you know, unfortunately, to my knowledge, Adam Zertal never became a New Testament believing Christian, but he could no longer deny the historical accuracy of the Bible. And so mm-hmm. after his excavation and discovery of the Mount Abal altar, uh, he, he became a believer in the historical accuracy of Scripture, which is, which is profound. And it's a profound statement to make when you are starting as an atheistic historian. Mm-hmm. Well, and when you see it for yourself, I just think that that makes a, a huge difference. It would, um, for me, it probably would for anyone. Um, yeah. And I, and now I'm somewhat jealous that I did get to go. Hopefully, <laughs> one of these days, it'll be a fun. It could be a cool Haney family excursion someday, either yeah. maybe next year in Jerusalem. Uh, but fast forwarding in in history, uh, a few centuries or two, um, the uh, the other sites that you got to tour. Um, yeah. Many of them uh, centered around the life of Christ. Yes. Um, for example, you got to see you went to Bethlehem where mm-hmm. it all begins. Yes. And you got to walk in really in the footsteps or ride a tour bus more accurately. <laughs> the footsteps yeah. of Jesus, yeah. which I mean, that brings a new appreciation for the the amount of walking that all yeah. these first century folks had to do. There were no tour buses. And I guess you're lucky if you get a donkey uh, on right. most days. Th- these are that would be a long distance to cover on foot in desert terrain. Oh, oh yeah. We're, we're talking some of the places that Jesus traveled on foot. We're, we're talking upwards of 30 to 60 miles. Uh, and he didn't do that every single day because usually he would go to a location and, and spend some time there. But yeah, uh, you know, back in those days, they didn't have tour buses. <laughs> and uh, when we were in Jerusalem, we got a little taste of that because our first full day that we stayed in the city of Jerusalem. So I said we, we saw approximately 30 different locations throughout the country. About 15 of those were truly around the country, and the other 15 were all around the city of Jerusalem. And so our very first full day that we spent in the city was our first Sunday there, uh, and we really did a walk where Jesus walked tour around the city, and, and by the end of the day, we were just flat out exhausted. Uh, I, I don't, I mean, I, my, my watch, I think, stopped tracking how many steps I took after I hit about 20,000, uh, <laughs> and, and we went to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus did so many of his teachings, uh, where the Garden of Gethsemane was located, where he prayed before his betrayal and arrest. Uh, we walked through the city where he, where he would have walked being after his arrest, uh, where he was put on trial, uh, where he was crucified, where he was buried, uh, many places in the city where he was teaching, uh, the pools where many baptisms were taking place. And so, yeah, we, we got to see it all. Now, obviously, there's modern-day structures uh, that are filling the land. But but in many of the places where there have been archaeological sites uh, protected and preserved and done, um, we can still see a lot of the first century stones and rocks and structures that would have been in place. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it's just it's just unbelievable to to see these these footstones in the middle of the street that truly do date back to the first century. And, and we can know that, like, this is literally where Jesus and the apostles walked. 
What were some of the most impactful places that you saw personally? Oh, you know, my, oh, uh, there's a lot. So, uh, uh, you know, we went to, this one's not directly Jesus connected, but we went to the Valley of Allah, which is where David slew Goliath. Hmm. And we know that that's the correct valley. Once again, when archaeologists ha- are lining up the descriptions of the terrain with uh, with the layout of the land today, uh, and also the history that has preser- been preserved through time, through various writings and artifact discoveries, we know that this is correctly the valley uh, where David uh, confronts the Israelites. And he says, hey, why does somebody go kill that guy? <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and Goliath is throwing insults. And David says, how dare you mock my God and my people? Uh, and boy, I just, I, I get pumped up every time I think about the story of David, because that is the type of faith and fervor that, that I strive to have, that when somebody takes the Lord's name in vain, I want to say, how dare you mock mm-hmm. my God and my people that way. Uh, and so, uh, that's something I got to do was in that valley, the, the brook where he picked up the stones, it's still there. Like it was dry cause we were in the dry season. So there wasn't water running. But I got to pick up a handful of stones as souvenirs for the kids. Uh, and so that was really cool. Uh, so that was pretty powerful because one of my favorite sermons I've ever done in all my preaching time has been a sermon on David and Goliath. Uh, another one uh, that I talked about in my sermon was on Caesarea Philippi uh, with the gates of Hades. Uh, and so I could talk for the next three hours just about that site alone and the history that's connected with the gates of Hades. But uh, but in, in like a one minute brief overview in Matthew 16, 18, it's Peter's confession of faith that you are the son of, of the living God. Uh, and Jesus says that, you know, uh, you're Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Uh, well, that term that the gates of Hades has very real, tangible geographic significance because it is almost certain. I mean, we don't know exactly where him and, and the apostles were standing when that statement was made, but it is almost certain that he would have been standing in the vicinity of a place that was known in the first century. Caesarea Philippi is a Roman Grecian city uh, that worships Greek gods, uh, and they have a location known as the Gates of Hades that is worshipped by pagan religion as the Gates of Hades. It's the place where souls would enter the underworld, Hades, after they died. It's the place where the gods could come and go into the world below to our world and ascend on Mount Hermon, which is the mountaintop above the gates of Hades and Caesarea Philippi. That's where the gods would ascend up into the heavens, which is where the transfiguration occurs. And so we have Jesus saying the gates of Hades won't prevail against his church. And and to me, seeing the geographic context, uh, Jesus is making a very bold, offensive statement that there is no false religion, false truth, that will stand up against his church, the church of, of Christ, and the church that belongs to the one way and, and, the, and the truth. And what a powerful testament. It's a declaration of a conquering king. It's like taking yeah. your flag and planting it yeah. on the mountain and saying, this is mine. Yeah, and I, yeah. I own this. And you yeah. all, any and all pretenders will not stand because yeah. this is, I mean, my church will never, will never fall. Yeah. You're never going that- to prevail against it. Exactly. And, and it's just so powerful for Jesus to have made that statement at that specific site. And what's interesting is that uh, his travel to Caesarea Philippi, it only occurs once in his entire ministry. It's the furthest north he goes is that location in this Greek town where the god Pan is worshipped. And I didn't mention this in the sermon. Uh, and, and maybe depending on the age of your listeners, I'll be sensitive to the way I word this. But the god Pan is a satyr. He's half man, half goat. And by Greek mythology, how do you worship the gods? Well, you emulate 
that God's identity through sexual lasciviousness. And so you had bestiality with goats occurring at this location. This is the type of gross, gross fornication and sin that's going, why in the world would a Jew, why in the world would the pure, innocent king and savior go to a location that is so saturated with this just ewness? Yeah, it's uh, very ick. But yeah, it is. Uh, other than to declare that his kingdom will conquer even the most disgusting of sins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so that, that was very powerful. And, and then, then, then the third one would, I mean, it's pretty easy. One. I mean, just the sight of the, the crucifixion and the tomb. I mean, how, I mean, to see, to see the rock where, where the Christ, where the cross would have been planted, uh, to see the tomb where, where Christ's body would have lain, but more importantly, where it was resurrected. Uh, I mean, there's, uh, there's just no words to describe being able to, to see that in person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it reminds me of the the fact, again, these are real people that are yeah. writing and and the human author, inspired, of course, by the Holy Spirit, but the human authors were really there. And most yeah. of them were writing of things they had either seen or they were writing a testimony of eyewitnesses. And the the there are several passages, actually, where they say, you can go see. Basically, yeah. like they're inviting people to say, look at all of these witnesses. There's like 500 people that saw Jesus Christ raised from the dead. These yeah. go to Mary, go to the go to Martha, go to Lazarus, go interview these folks because they will tell you they'll verify that these things happened exactly as I'm saying. And yeah. I, I just think, again, historically speaking, this has to be respected. Now, you choose what you do with Jesus and what he is in your life, whether he is your savior and your Lord or, or not, but you can't say that he's just a figment of somebody's imagination. You can't say he's just a giant myth, you know, in the realm of Hercules or, or, you know, one of the other um, uh, mythologies from different cultures, ancient cultures, when they were trying to make sense of the world, this is, this is a real guy. And, and the historically verifiable Christ has more evidence um, for the fact that he is actually a, a real human being in history um, than really any other human being that we know of. Yeah. Uh, so then I guess the question is, for all of us considering that today, is what does that mean to us? What does that, what do we do with Jesus and the fact that he really did exist and he really did say, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. What do we do with that? The Jesus that said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Who said, I bring hope for your souls. I am life. I am come that you may have life and have it abundantly. That if you come to me, you will see the Father. I mean, that he is the bread of life. Uh, Can we trust that? Can we believe that? Is that true for you? Is that your hope? That's that's my hope. I'm staking everything on that one. And Tyler, I know you are too. And that after this trip, it's all the more real. And uh, I'm really excited. I'm more excited now than jealous. I was at first, I was like, well, maybe someday it'll be me. But now it's it's just exciting. Like what God can do through you, through your team of classmates and researchers that were there. And just that more and more of this truth and this evidence will spread far and wide and provoke these discussions, provoke that kind of uh, confrontation, if you will, with what will you do with Jesus? He's really real in a real place, and he's really coming back. If you believe that, then he said he's coming back again to bring the the new heaven and the new earth to collect those to him, to himself, um, that are his. And this idea of the new 
Jerusalem is uh, the hope of every believer in Jesus Christ. So pretty cool. Amen. Amen. Tyler Hawkins, Amen. we're out of time. I'm just, I'm so excited for, for you. I'm glad that you're back home safe and that Thank I you. know that Megan and the family are as well. So yes. thanks for taking the time to talk to us a little bit about your trip. I know you've got lots of more memories. You even brought some artifacts to us that you got to take home, that you got to sneak in your bag with permission. That's right. Uh, That's right. So, <laughs> so it was really cool. Like folks, this is, yeah. this would be really fun to do and uh, to, to share that evidence with us, to provoke um, a, at least a discussion about what people are going to do with Jesus. If he's a fact, then what does that mean to you? How does that change how you live your life? To me, it changes everything. So thanks yeah. for sharing. Absolutely. And just one quick tag uh, sure. to throw out there. If anybody would be interested in something like this or supporting efforts like this, uh, check out seeinghisworld.com. Seeinghisworld.com. Uh, it is the ministry program that helped uh, fund Freed Harbor University to have us as students go and the seeinghisworld.com, it's uh, the ministry there. They allow public signups as well. Uh, they, they don't do the grants for just anyone who wants to go. They do that for students. But if anybody wants to get a tour like we had, uh, you can sign up for future tours through them at seeinghisworld.com. And, and you can get to experience all the cool things that we did seeinghisworld.com. Excellent. I'll post that in the link to the podcast. If you enjoyed this, share it uh, with a friend. So glad you tuned in today. Let me know what you find most interesting about this discussion of biblical archaeology, some of the cool things. I mean, I think there's there's just probably too many to mention, but um, if uh, you want to pass this on and then provoke a discussion, let's spark uh, what, what this means to us about seeing these actual you know, biblical places and understanding that God's word is accurate. It is history. These things really happen. These people really existed. And what does that mean for Jesus? What do we do with Jesus? Thanks for listening. And until next time, we have a mission. So let's be about it. Our mission is to love God, serve people, and live free. Hello. Hey, Frank, it's Bob. We were wondering if you and Frida would like to have dinner with us Friday. Oh, we'd love to. Hang on. Who is it, dear? It's Bob and Betty. When we deal with others, they only know what we allow them to know about us. They want us to come over for dinner. Ew, not again. There's a smell at their house. I know. Hey, Bob, as much as we'd love to, uh, we're busy this Friday. Oh, are you sure you can't make it? Well, uh, let me double check. But while we may be able to fool others, we can't fool God. Nope, there's just no way we can make it. Oh, that's too bad. We have free tickets to the bowling tournament. You mean the one that's been sold out for the last three weeks? Yeah, oh well, maybe next time. See you later. Oh, no, wait, wait, whoa, no! But the good news is even though he knows our hearts completely, he's still willing to forgive us because he loves us. Have you talked to God honestly? Another message from Lifeline Productions, the comic strip of radio at lifelinepro.com. When a woman faces an unplanned pregnancy, every possible emotion goes through her head. Where can she go for help and for hope? She can go to Inner Visions. Here in our metro, we have two healthcare clinics where she will find hope and help. From free pregnancy testing and STD testing to free ultrasounds, InterVision serves women and men with STDs who find themselves in vulnerable situations. They're completely free of charge because of generous donations from folks like you. And their medical clinics help their patients get all the information that they deserve that empowers them to make life-affirming decisions. 
That's what they do at Intervisions Healthcare Clinics right here in Des Moines. Learn more at intervisionshealthcare.org. That's intervisionshealthcare.org. And you can call 24 hours a day at 515-440-CARE. That's 515-440-2273. Welcome to the game show, For Heaven's Sake. Today's contestants will compete to see whose sin is unforgivable. Our contestants are Frank and Alex. Okay, Frank, tell us your sin. Uh, I told my wife I lost my wedding ring, but actually I hawked it at a pawn shop to pay off my gambling debts. Wow, the judges rate that unforgivable. Alex, it's now your turn. Well, uh, some co-workers and I made fun of this guy, and we beat him up. And then we killed him, even though we didn't deserve it. Alex, that's something no one would forgive. Actually, one person did forgive us. The guy we killed said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Have you done something that you think God will not forgive? Even when Jesus was being crucified, he forgave those doing the killing. God's love is greater than our sins. Have you accepted his forgiveness? Another message from Lifeline Productions, located on the web at lifelinepro.com. In today's world, security has never been more vital. And at FaithWorks Live, we're proud to partner with Veriguard Security. It's a professional physical security service. And they're really raising the bar in security and private investigations. Whether you need a team of professional officers to protect what you have worked hard to build, or their mobile security units for multiple properties or large locations, from business or corporate properties to your home or neighborhood. Perhaps you've got an event coming up. They secure quality security coverage for events large and small because it's about peace of mind and protecting you, your family, your team, and your property. Settle for nothing less than the best when it comes to your security. You shouldn't have to compromise. When it comes to security, you can trust Veriguard. Contact them today at veriguard.us. That's V-A-R-A guard.us. For security service, you can trust Veriguard. 